Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a keynote fireside discussion from the 2021 Craco Conference between Dr. Laura Esserman of UCSF and Dr. Janet Woodcock of the FDA on a vision for the integration of clinical research and care. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. I'm Janet Woodcock, and Dr. Esterman is here with me, and we're to talk about a mutual passion of ours, which is how can we integrate clinical research into clinical care in a seamless way so that more and more of people in this country can actually have the opportunity to participate in clinical research, no matter where they live or what, what uh, where geographically or socioeconomically, uh, they have the same opportunities. So I'm really glad to be able to talk to Laura because she's been a huge proponent in this field. So let's set up the issue. Uh, Laura, you know, the fraction of people with life-threatening illnesses who are actually able to participate in clinical trials is very low. For cancer, that estimate is about 3%. For critically ill people with uh, COVID-19 over the last uh, year, it's about 1%. And here we missed opportunities, not only to learn faster, but also to offer the highest standard of care and potentially uh, determ determine life-saving therapies quicker and, and offer that opportunity to, to many people who were, who were sick with the virus. So why don't we explore some of the factors that has led to this state of affairs? Uh, yeah, what do thanks. you think about it? Yeah, thanks, Janet. Um, you know, as you know, opening a clinical trial and conducting it is really time consuming and expensive. And even though most trials come with compensation, they're still really hard to open. And clinical trials really are how we advance care, as you said, they're how we study new care processes and new ideas or new treatments. And it's really how we make sure that our care tomorrow is better than it is today, which really should be our goal in clinical care writ large. But in fact, that's not usually how it works. And you know, if you have an industry-sponsored trial, you know, every industry usually sponsors their own trial. And it, that can be across multiple sites since you have to do it a particular way, but then you can have multiple industry people wanting to have a trial. And if you have an investigator initiated trial and an academic trial, it's usually only at your own site, but you can imagine now like in cancer, like in breast cancer, we might have 30 ongoing trials at our sites. And that means that we've got 30 different case report forms, different ways of putting that data in. Every trial is a new IRB submission, every, uh, contract is a new contract. It's slow. It's ponderous, and you know, and we're extracting the same data in different ways with different words, over and over. Really, basically copying from an electronic form to another electronic form, and it really isn't that much of an improvement over paper. And you know, clinical. I think one of the problems that that. The idea of clinical research is simply just to make sure that you're doing better. Really, if you take the notion of quality improvement and you say, gosh, you know, my job in clinical practice is to get better. And you shouldn't be just practicing, you should be practicing to get better. And if that were really the standard and we were actually collecting outcomes as we went and standard set of data, you know, 
clinical research and trials could be a seamless part of care. Yes, well, I would tell you from my recent experience, I was uh, lead at Operation Warp Speed for therapeutics development. And what we had really tens of thousands of people dying from this disease around the country and, and even larger numbers hospitalized. And yet we had enrollment problems. And why was that? Well, the academic trials, Laura, you were talking about are done in uh, academic research centers and they are not that numerous compared to the number of care sites. Right. And then industry trials are done in CRO sites that have been trained and groomed. And so they uh, are used to enrolling patients and participating in clinical research. So the best uh, number of sites of clinical care in this country are not trained or prepared to participate in clinical research studies. So not only are the patients denied an opportunity to participate, but the practitioners are also denied the opportunity to participate in clinical research. And so we lose in diversity, we lose in enrollment, and we really, uh, I think, lose in equity. I agree. And I think what's missing in routine care is a feedback loop. You know, when the pandemic hit, you know, it's a perfect example. People are really frightened and they just kind of threw everything in the kitchen sink, <clears throat> anything that they could give. And, you know, it was a horrific experience for the people who are taking care of critically ill yes. patients in the ICU and watching all these people die and feeling desperate to want to put people on anything that would help. But when you do that, you also have no idea what's working and what's not working and just having a system getting the practitioners together to say, how can we kind of in a systematic way quickly learn what works, what doesn't work. And so at the end of the day, you can test 10 things and know what works and what doesn't work. And that's this old idea of real world data is if we kind of organize that way, it would be, you know, so much better. I mean, and I know that you, you know, I think that part of it is also that we're not really incentivized to work in teams together, you know, to really, um, to really learn as efficiently as we can. I mean, that has a lot to do with academic in, in, in incentives and it has to do with, you know, how hard it is to collaborate. And, you know, I, I think that as I, I, I think you should talk about the SCTs, you know, you, 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 you talked about sort of that prolifer proliferating and what we can do to maybe uh, change that because it's really an opportunity cost. You know, if we fail to test more options more quickly, it's an issue. And, and in cancer, I mean, you know, breast cancer, 40,000 plus women a year are dying of breast cancer. So it's not like it, this isn't a serious disease. We didn't have 500,000 people dying, but it's a lot. Why shouldn't we have that same urgency for all of these you know, potentially lethal diseases where we can make progress more quickly? So maybe you can sort of talk a little bit about how we can get over some of this problem. Absolutely. You know, We did a study at FDA of um, the trials that were ongoing globally, worldwide. We were able to use the registries and we looked at the therapeutic trials because we wanted to know what was going on. And what we found was only about 5% of the trials that were being conducted were adequately powered given the question they were uh, asking and randomized. In other words, able to have a comparison group so you could uh, conclude something, 
Most of those trials were the master protocols or platform trials. So these are trials that are continuous. They're ongoing. They can test multiple agents. Uh, Laura is a PI when uh, two of them on the iSpy COVID and the breast cancer iSpy trial. Um, the most prominent in the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 field has been recovery in the UK, where uh, it was pragmatic uh, master protocol where they randomized patient, large numbers of patients to large numbers of possible interventions, and they have been cranking out answers, yes or no, um, ever since uh, you know they got that initiated and moving ahead. But we found that um, although only 5% of those trials, um, of the trials were uh, adequate for, for, for actionable data at the end, the vast majority of those were platform trials and those platform trials accounted for a lot of enrollment uh, of all the trials because many of these trials weren't just poorly designed, they were under enrolled, uh, they competed with each other at medical centers and so forth. So um, really, I think we really, ought to think about um, how master protocols or platform trials, which are more serial kind of trials, can be integrated into clinical care and become an ongoing activity that, that everyone engages in, as Laura said, for continuous learning. I think the pandemic has moved us ahead on that because those are the trials that are delivering the data in general to that on how we care for these patients. And so um, those, those learnings from those trials need to be um, you know, instantiated more broadly. And also, if Laura, if I could go on for a second, sure. um, the urgency of the pandemic uh, forced everyone who are always, of course, very conservative. We have now, we tried telehealth visits for uh, clinical visits and we cut down on in-person visits and we delivered medicine to their home and we did more electronic data capture, and we, we did uh, uh, remote sensing and so forth. And guess what? The world did not come to an end. Uh, we still learn things. So we learned that there are many ways we can probably streamline trials yep. in addition to using master protocols that might make this much more feasible in the community. What do you well, think, Laura? I, I, I definitely think that. And you and I have talked about this before. I think in 2014, I said, well, why, why shouldn't we be thinking about submitting a data plan? Meaning, what are your primary endpoints? What are the things that you want to collect? What are the standard data sets that everybody should be collecting? And how are you then doing your analysis of it? And so that I think that actually helps reassure industry that if you submit a trial that the FDA isn't then gonna come back to you and say, oh, but you didn't collect this, that, and the other. And you know, this idea that we have to collect everything, it's just not feasible. And, you know, and I think the pandemic really made it clear. You know, if you're trying to put patients on trial in a very busy ICU, yeah. you, know, you have to be reasonable. And it's not that we didn't have a lot of data. In fact, we do have a lot of data. And you know we are you know working on this idea that you know why is everybody collecting labs? I mean that's crazy. Labs are numbers; they should be able to be pulled out. Well, it turns out, you know that the labs are different because they have a different reference range. So if you take the upper limit of, if you get the reference range, you basically pull the lab, the reference, you know the upper limit of normal, and normalize it. 
Now everything is comparable and no one has to do anything. And by the way, you now have it organized in a way that you can look for toxicity. And really when you've got, and this is true, either the treatments cause problems or the disease itself causes problems. And if you're really looking for a signal to noise ratio to find out, is it the drug that's causing it? Is it the disease that's causing it? You know, is it your treatment, you know, standard treatment that's causing it? You actually basically have to just standardly collect this on everyone in a way that you can just look to see, you know, what's the distribution of all these symptoms and does it shift? That's really how attribution should be done. And it should be done without people's bias. And these are really simple things that we can do. And we have shown, and we're starting to now uh, implement this in a couple of sites, we can pull in, you know, uh, demographics, you know, this can be EHR agnostic, right? You can pull in demographics, concomitant medications, and labs, and no one should have to repeat that, right? And we can analyze data in this way. And in fact, create a file that the FDA can just go to directly and look at all those kinds of innovations that you talked about, making it more streamlined, making it, I mean, this is what should happen for care too, by the way. And that's why I love this idea that clinical care should change so that it's more structured, more organized, more oriented towards quality improvement. Mm -hmm. And if we want to accelerate change in clinical care, we really have to get this change in mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets. Our mindset should be, we're here to make sure that we know what we're doing, know how to improve it, and know what's working and what's not working. And that when we change, we can't fix clinical research from the clinical research standpoint, we have to fix our clinical care infrastructure and our mindset about it. And if we do that, it, and, and we, integrate those kind of innovations that you talked about, about making things more patient-centered, you know, delivering drugs. These are all things to homes. These are all things that we should be doing in clinical care as well. So trials need to look more like care. Care needs to look more like trials. And there's some happy medium where you've integrated care and research as a learning system and a continuously improving system. I think that that's the holy grail, I think. I agree. And where we are right now, I think there's a unique opportunity because the pandemic uh, unveiled a, a big gap in the U.S. clinical research and ecosystem and really around the world is we weren't able to uh, learn from most of the patients who experienced disease, as Laura said. Uh, they were, you know, cared for in whatever possible way was available at the time and that information wasn't able to be captured. And I believe, and I've told uh, the National Academies this, I feel that we need to treat uh, clinical research just like we would the national stockpile. We need a reserve, we need capacity going on uh, outside of the pandemic so we can turn that capacity towards uh, uh, study sh should another emergency happen. But what we had, we didn't have trained investigators. We didn't have research infrastructure outside of the traditional channels. And they quickly got clogged up by many of these investigator initiated trials and certain industry sponsored trials. And then there wasn't that much room um, and, and um, capacity to really uh, study all the different possibilities that we could have used to look at outpatients with COVID inpatients 
post-discharge. There's so many questions with this complex disease. And had we had the capacity, um, we might have, we probably could have learned much faster and we wouldn't have people running around now saying, oh, we should have used this drug or this drug. It would have aborted the symptoms earlier, decreased your disease progression. Well, we don't know really until we test it. Right. Uh, and these, I, these ideas, I'm sorry, Laura, that yeah, have been around for quite a long time, but what's right. been missing is funding. And I think we're in a place now where we can say this must be funded because it is a capacity that is going to be required in an emergency and we need to set it up. Laura. I, I think that that's, it's, that's really exciting. And I think it's really great. And, you know, I, I, I am, as you know, very passionate about that. I think, you know, I just sort of think about all of the, you, you know, all of the opportunities we've had. I, I mean, it's funny that the pandemic would allow us to move some of these things forward that we've been pushing on for so long. You wouldn't have expected it. And, you know, I, I actually wound up getting into this because one of our pulmonary critical care faculty at UCSF had spent a year sabbatical in my lab the year before the pandemic hit. And when it hit, you know, I said, well, gosh, now's your moment. And, uh, and you know, as you know, that's when I called you and said, well, should we try and do this? And I think the experience of trying to go fast and to sort of move things forward, and it really made it very clear, you had to have a central IRB. I mean, there are so many ticky tacky things about our research system right. with capacity that really reflect generalized lack of trust in the system. So. Like every, no IRB trusts another IRB. Why is that? Well, really, that's kind of silly. You know, uh, why, um, you know, why, why don't we, uh, like one of the things we've tried to have more drugs put in the trial more quickly, every pharmacy has to do their own research build. That's crazy. It's not like it's the same drug, it's the same orders. You know that, and I think part of the problem is that our electronic health records are all designed, and I think, and that serves you know, the manufacturers for each institution, and each institution has their own version. So there isn't something standard that you can use. I think these are problems. This, this, this is this is bad for care, and it's bad for our ability to learn. We want to be able to have data exchange. That's how we learn. So there should be, and that's why we're trying to take an agnostic approach to say what we need is a quality improvement layer where everyone's allowed to collaborate. You can have you know, checklists of data that you collect, standard ways of, of implementing uh, you know, drug and drug orders, new trials that allow us to work quickly. Because you could take six weeks to do something or a week to do it. And it's not better if you take six weeks. In fact, it's much worse because it's opportunity cost. So lack of trust, lots of duplication. And, um, you know, and also I, I think the last cultural thing is that like people come in and are so sure that certain things are gonna work and you can be very hopeful. I mean, one's always most helpful before the data rolls in. And a lot of times the things that you really thought were gonna work didn't. And sometimes because you studied it wrong, but not, but we have to be sure that learning from what doesn't work is just as important from learning what does. And there's a real bias of only wanting to publish, you know, or talk about success. But what fails is also important because you can move on and you can do it quickly. And it's good for the industry because no one's wasting their time on things that don't work. 
Well, in the pandemic, it was really important because people were using all these interventions yeah. because they were using them um, off-label because they didn't have anything else to do, to use. So they were trying all sorts of things on patients. And most urgent thing to do was to figure out which ones didn't work because almost every drug does some harm if it's not doing good. So that was, that was really, really important to get done. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, another thing that I've heard is that, and I think up until the pandemic, what you often saw was, you know, industry in particular, if they had a drug that's either on a path for FDA approval or it's already FDA approved, nobody wanted to use their drug for another indication. We've seen that when we've tried to repurpose drugs for cancer. Oh, well, I, I, I don't want to take a risk that this drug would then, we'd find a complication and I'll take my successful drug and have it come off the market. So I'm not going to put it up. But the pandemic, I think, you know, you started to see the heads of R&D from the R&D consortium, COVID consortium, they got together and said, wow, you know, this is threatening our lives, our livelihoods. We, we need to dig deep, find what drugs might work, you know, led by, you know, uh, that group where they said, oh, I want to put these drugs in. And I think, you know, we put in several of those drugs that did not work, but that should not, I don't think, and we'll test, but should not have hurt their right. successful portfolio. And I think, I, I'd like to know what your stance is, how to help make sure that we can repurpose drugs and we can make sure that we can encourage people to test these things. Then it's not off-label, it's actually a real test and people like reduce the fear that we can really move forward with innovation in a different way. What do you think? Well, I do think that's one of the lessons learned we need to talk about after this. You know, what happened? What happened to these drugs? Uh, uh, did it cause some bad um, problems for their, uh, their um, developers? No, most likely not. Um, you know, how can we how can we do pragmatic trials with repurposed drugs? And I think there's going to be some learning at the FDA and some soul searching they're going to have to do too. I mean, um, recovery, of course, has been criticized because it's open label and it's this and that. But um, in fact, they're cranking out answers and they're, they're a highly pragmatic um, uh, uh, approach to getting evidence. So I would just like to add, Laura, you're talking about all the different small, you know, it's a death by a thousand cuts and pretty soon it's taken you three or four months to stand up a trial because everybody has to get their little process in the clinical trial agreements, the uh, whatever, the pharmacy bill, the, you know, the IRBs, the research committees of every institution and so forth and so on. And pretty soon, and that's what, uh, pretty soon you can't get a trial up for six months in the middle of a dire emergency. So that's why I think we need to build uh, integrated research structure within clinical care in a time that isn't an emergency. So we can confront these problems and we can work through them one by one. Because if you have a um, network up and running and doing studies, it's much uh, quicker to repurpose that as like Remap Cap and a few other uh, uh, networks showed, than it is to try to build something uh, out of the up from from the ground up in the middle of a dire emergency. So I really think um, we need to identify uh, at 
what used to be called Operation Warp Speed, which now is called the US government operation. We, the therapeutics group are doing this big lessons learned as, uh, uh, as Laura said, that she's participating in to try and get a, a to-do list of all these different obstacles that were encountered and just getting a trial up and running, trying to get answers on how to treat these critically ill people. But in between emergencies, you know, we can be not only studying cancer, we can study like how to best manage people in the community with hypertension or with heart disease or with type two diabetes or other common illnesses, osteoporosis. I mean, if community-based research can really be informative and we can keep that whole infrastructure warm and going by answering critical care questions in medicine. So I think that's a tremendous opportunity to uh, build something that can be repurposed, but also will have value on its own. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, I totally agree with you. And again, I think it's this idea of mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets. Our mindset should be that we should be, you know, collecting data in a way or collecting data in a, in a clinic where we have checklists of data that are the mission critical pieces of information we need to know who is this person what treatment are they getting and how did it work it's really those kind of basic ideas and here are the checklists and you can do it more detailed or less detailed but here is you know the minimum essential data set that's really what a checklist is and most people can agree to it it's not that complicated and here's the minimum essential follow-up data that everyone should get and in fact, if we paid for that instead of 12 point review systems or that I spent 20 minutes with you or 60 minutes with you, everybody would do it by the way. And then all of a sudden think about what you'd have. And then what we have to do is make sure that there's no barrier to sharing data. You know, the EHRs wanna keep everything separate and you know, they don't want bad data getting in there, but then we need to have the idea that we want to share and organize this data so that we know what the base is. So we can say very quickly, hey, how many people are responding to first line drugs in particular? Yes. And how many people are going to second line? And by the way, shouldn't we be having multiple shots on goal? And it's, you know, that's, as you know, in iSpy2 in the breast cancer setting, we're trying to think about as we get more and more successful in getting response, shouldn't we be saying, there should be still a place to test some of these new less toxic therapies, give people their first shot. If they do, they can go on and skip the rest of it, then get rescued by whatever's best. And then if it's still not working, understand that biology and give someone that third shot on goal. Isn't that what every patient wants? And if you, even if your early endpoint isn't perfect, people, you know, patients know what it is. We know what it is, whether it's, you know, response to complete response to therapy or circulating DNA or whatever it might be. We should not wait for three and five years for people to recur. We should be doing our best to optimize those early endpoints and give people their best shot with the least toxicity to get there. And I think that's another exciting opportunity for us to evolve our care. And it's interesting that that comes up in the ICU as well. And COVID, again, diseases writ large are, are very common. You've got something that's making you critically ill and you wanna adapt and change it. So like someone who's been in the ICU for two weeks on, an, on a ventilator, okay, now their mortality has gone from 30% to 60% and their chance of being a long hauler and being in the ICU for a longer period of time is much higher. We should 
re-randomize those patients to something else. And maybe there isn't something, but why aren't we learning? It's, mm -hmm. it's you know, and, and having more than one drug in a trial and many people participating, you don't have to have things uh, double blind because it's too complicated and nobody really knows what's going on either. Mm -hmm. So there are other ways to learn. There are other ways to organize data if we could solve some of these big problems that you talked about. Getting people just writ large in the community and in the academic places, organizing data collection, and that we put our money where our mouths are and pay for high quality data and make sure that there is something, and the government I think can really help, um, you know, make sure that we can collect and share data and, you know, I think it could be that the future, I mean, one thing is, what do you think about the future of cooperative group learning be really a more of a platform type of trial concept? Well, that, that's very interesting. Uh, that one other thing I wanted to say about this is another thing that became much more broadly accepted during this period when we we're trying to learn fast was adaptive designs and even Bayesian reasoning. Uh, for some decisions. And these things enable you to move forward with confidence, but much more quickly. And again, they're not, you don't shut the trial down, spend a whole lot of time looking at the data, publish it, and then start trying to figure out how to set up another trial. You learn and move on. And in an emergency, it's really important, but in healthcare and learning and, and serious diseases, that's very important as well. So and that's more, I think clinical maybe, care, I think, right? Pardon me? And that's that's really clinical care. Yes. I mean, that it, it, we are Bayesian. We take it in, we, we assess someone, we, we give them something, we take in that information, and then we adapt. So being able to take that data, model it, and organize it, and have it a continuously learning platform, I think that's that's the future for both care and research. Yes. So from my point of view, to wrap up, I think um, COVID... 19 uh, disease and our experiences with it have provided a lot of unique learning. And some of that learning is we weren't really prepared to do clinical research in the scale and the speed that we needed to do to get answers as quickly as possible. And it is really incumbent upon us to take those lessons learned and use this as an opportunity to do something that we've long desired, which is to integrate um, clinical research into clinical care so that every provider can actually become a researcher and contribute to knowledge and every patient's experience will count. And people, no matter where they live and what their status is, would have an opportunity to participate in clinical research either um, during, um, during normal times with normal diseases or during an emergency. And I think there's a unique opportunity here we need to focus our attention and move towards it. Laura. Such a beautiful vision, Janet, and I so agree with it. And you know, we we've embodied those principles in the iSpy two trial breast cancer. And when we had the opportunity to port it over to see whether it would work in another disease, we found that we could actually start up an entire network, have it efficiently working in three to four months. And, you know, in less than six months, we accrued a thousand patients and we are you know, have put eight drugs through this through this network and are learning much faster. And I think this this network of people 
that really now trust each other and want to work together, want to continue on with ARDS and keep this running. I think that's, and, and that we have checklists of data and we're working on integrating this into the care process, uh, I think shows that it's possible. I think the pandemic showed that many of the things that we thought were impossible are certainly possible. Many of the things that we've clung onto, you know, uh, we can let go of. And as you say, they don't make any difference. And I, I, I love the Elias Sirhuni quote. He said, the worst thing that you can do is, you know, stop innovating and stop trying to do something different. And you have to have a new, you have to be willing to embrace a new model uh, and uh, and let go of the rung to which you are clinging if you want progress or something like that. And I think that we're used to doing things a certain way. Yeah. And we all know that it just, it's, it just, it's it's inefficient and it's not great for people and we can do better. We can 100% do better and we've demonstrated that. And I think this opens up, we can have a central IRB. We can, you know, bring a new drug in, in, in through the FDA, through a central IRB, through 28 sites now in a month, why not? We can do it. And so this is our big opportunity to make change and take a look at ourselves and say, who do we wanna be as a country? How do we wanna learn? And I agree with you, we could lead in a whole new way of setting this general infrastructure up in medicine that is integrating care and research that uh, a critical part of the clinical care process is mm -hmm. to learn and improve. And we can structure it in a way and in collaboration with the FDA so that we're learning and we're working on regulatory processes. And in fact, that could also be the way in which we do phase four trials because you're willing to approve earlier if you know you're gonna get the data and you'll be able to see what happens in the clinic. You know, if we could really implement a vision like this, it would be really so great for every human being in this country and the world actually, don't you think? Yes, well, I think there's a good chance this is going to happen, but of course I'm an optimist, but let's all keep working on it. Uh, Laura, you've made tremendous contributions to this whole field. And if we keep pressing on this, I believe now is the time that we can, this will come to pass. So it's really been a pleasure talking to you and uh, uh, I hope the audience uh, has really uh, caught some of our passion because we need all the help we can get. For sure. Thank you so much, Janet. <laughs> and thank you for all of your incredible contributions. You're amazing. And the country is lucky to have you, your national treasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you.